Here's another study from Calvary Chapel, Rochester. So Leviticus chapter 24, um, I uh, kind of stole this from someone who stole it from somebody else, so I don't feel too bad. But anyways, I'm not really good at alliteration, but we've got a little bit of alliteration here as far as breaking up the chapter, and it's pretty easy uh, to break this chapter up. Um, we have the first section, which is providing the holy oil, and that's in verses 1 through 4. And then we have preparing the holy bread, that's in verses 5 through 9. And then protecting the holy name, verses 10 through 14. And then appropriate penalties in verses 15 through 23. So that's kind of how you can break up this chapter. Uh, you could break it up any way you want, but that's how I broke it up anyways. So we're going to take a look at the first uh, section there, verses 1 through 4, providing the holy oil. <coughs> So if you'll join reading with me, verse 1, it says, Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Command the children of Israel that they bring to you pure oil of pressed olives for the light, to make the lamps burn continually. Outside the veil of the testimony in the tabernacle of meeting, Aaron shall be in charge of it from evening until morning before the Lord continually. It shall be a statute forever in your generations. He shall be in charge of the lamps on the pure gold lampstand before the Lord continually. So we're going to be looking, first of all, at the, at the lampstand in the sanctuary, in the tabernacle. And, uh, you know, it, it, and we've done this before. As you go through the book of Leviticus or Exodus, and you look at these articles of the tabernacle, in fact, the tabernacle itself, the role of the priest, the priest himself, everything points to Jesus, either his nature or his ministry. And the lampstand is really no different than that. Uh, the lampstand, if you think about it, the way, if you know how the uh, tabernacle was constructed, it, there's no sunlight coming in it. It's very heavily covered. And so it would be pitch black inside of the tabernacle, except for the lampstand. The lampstand would be the only thing that would provide light in that tabernacle. And again, that points to Jesus. Uh, you know, Jesus is the only light, right? He's the light of the world. In fact, in John 8, 12, he said, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. And you and I as believers, you know, we have that light inside of us. You know, the world looks at the things that are going on and there's a lot of panic and there's a lot of, you know, maybe there's some doomsday feeling, you know. Remember, was it 2012 or whatever, the Maya calendar, whatever that was supposed to, it was the end of the world, you know, and, and uh, people get all panicky and, and it's like, no, it's not the end of the world. We know how it ends. You know, sometimes you look at uh, Iran or these nations that hate Israel and they want to wipe Israel off the map and we're going to destroy them. And I go, yeah, no, it ain't going to happen because we know uh, we have the light, right? We have God's word. And so um, so Jesus, of course, is the light of the world. And, and praise God, you and I have that light dwelling inside of us. We have the hope. We have the answer. Um, and the answer, of course, is Jesus Christ. Well, now, if you look at the configuration of the lampstand, um, there was one center 
one center uh, uh, stem, basically, and then there were stems or branches, so to speak, that came out from the one stem. And uh, that is significant as well, because if you go to John chapter 15, verse 5, Jesus is speaking. Now, he's speaking of a grapevine, or I think it's a grapevine, or maybe it's a fig vine, but, but it applies to the lampstand. He says, I am the vine, and you are the branches. He who abides in me, and I in him, bears much fruit. For without me, you can do nothing. And so you just look at the lampstand, and there's the center stem, and the, the other, the other uh, branches are coming out from that stem. And, you know, as you and I abide in the vine, as we abide in Jesus Christ, Jesus is the light of the world, but you and I, we're the light as well, right? We shine the light of God inside of us as well. In fact, Jesus told us in Matthew 5, 16, he says, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. So not only is the lampstand itself significant, but the oil, the olive oil, that they were to prepare to uh, burn in the lampstand, that is significant as well. That's, of course, a picture or a symbol of the Holy Spirit. And like the lampstand uh, being filled with this oil continually, Jesus was filled with the Holy Spirit. Uh, on Tuesday nights, we right now we're, we're kind of wrapping up, but we're still working through the, the life of John the Baptist. And, and we've been talking about his baptism and, and, of course, Christ's baptism. And when he, you know, was baptized, the Holy Spirit descended upon him, and then he started his ministry. So Jesus was filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, remember, Jesus is fully God, right? We believe in the deity of Jesus Christ. He's fully God, and yet he was also fully man. And he lived his life as a man, just like you and I would. And yet... All the things that he did. Well, he was he ministered by that power of the Holy Spirit that was inside of him. And so if you think about that, just like the branches that have the same olive oil, the same oil, we have the Holy Spirit dwelling inside of us as well. You know, sometimes people come to me for advice and, you know, if I can offer to, you know, if I know, you know, if I have an understanding or something, I'll try to, I'll try to help them out. But a lot of times, and I don't always say this, but I think, hey, you know, you've got the same Holy Spirit I do. What's the Lord telling you? And so uh, we have the same Holy Spirit dwelling inside of us. And as the oil caused the lamp to burn continually, you know, so too you and I are to be filled with the Holy Spirit on a continual basis. Now, what's kind of significant about this passage here, because I titled it Provi Providing the Holy Oil, it's interesting who was to provide the holy oil. Moses was commanded by the Lord to have the children of Israel bring the oil to the tabernacle, and then Aaron would take the oil, and then he would fill the lampstand and keep it burning and stuff. But there was a participation with everybody in Israel. You know, sometimes there's a common attitude in church where people just, they come to church and uh, they come to be ministered to, you know, and so you, you show up at church and then everything's in place and, you know, everything's clean and there's coffee made and there's a worship team up there doing worship and, and you just come there and you worship the Lord and then as soon as it's over, you know, maybe you spend a little bit of time, but then you go home, right? And that's, that's it. Uh, and a lot of people, that's how, they, that's how they participate in church. But, you know, the thing is, if you look at this, the children of Israel were to participate as well as Aaron. We are all to participate in 
the whole in in ministry. And so I'm going to ask you this rhetorical question: Are you a participant in ministry, or are you a consumer of ministry? You know, in our in 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 situations, there's times in our lives where we are consumers of ministry. We need to be ministered to, and that that's perfectly normal and it's perfectly fine. But there's a point where we need to go from consumer to participant. And so I would challenge each of us, are you a participant in ministry or are you a consumer of ministry? And I really believe the Bible teaches, and I think it's an example here, that we are to be participants in ministry. Paul said this, well, that's the wrong slide, but Paul said this in 1 Corinthians 4, verses 11, uh, 4 through 11. He says, there are diversity of gifts, but the same spirit. There are differences of ministries, but the same Lord. And there are differences of activities, but it is the same God who works all in all. But the manifestation of the Spirit is given to each one for the profit of all. For to one is given the word of wisdom through the Spirit, to another the word of knowledge through the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healings by the same Spirit, to another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another discerning of spirits, to another different kinds of tongues, to another the interpretation of tongues. But one and the same Spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually as he wills. We've all been given spiritual gifts, and they're for the profit of all of us. And then Romans 12, 6, Paul said this, having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us, let's use them. So we're to be participants in ministry. Well, now we're going to look at the next section here, verses 5 through 9, and that is preparing the holy bread. Verse 5, and you shall take fine flour and bake 12 cakes with it. Two-tenths of an ephah shall be in each cake. You shall set them in two rows, six in a row, on the pure gold table before the Lord. And you shall put uh, pure, frankincense, per, pure, <laughs> pure frankincense on each row, that it may be on the bread for a memorial, an offering made by fire to the Lord. Every Sabbath, Sabbath, excuse me, he shall set it in order before the Lord continually, being taken from the children of Israel by an everlasting covenant. And it shall be for Aaron and for his sons, and they shall eat it in a holy place. For it is most holy to him from the offerings of the Lord made by fire by a perpetual statute. So here we have these 12 loaves of bread. What are they a symbol of? Well, I think there's a couple things, but in one sense, you think of it, there's 12 loaves of bread that are baked there, and there's 12 tribes of Israel. And I do believe that the 12 loaves represented each tribe of the, of the nation of Israel. They have an equal amount of flour, equal amount of ingredients, just like each tribe. There's, there's a, that we're all the same before the Lord. And, uh, and then you notice, and you know, I, I look at these pictures, and I got a picture up there of, of uh, how they think that the bread was, was uh, set up in the tabernacle. Nobody really knows, right? Because nobody was there that's alive today. But that's what people assume that that's what they did. And they have the frankincense in those uh, little things st sticking on, you know, little cups on top of the bread. Um, again, I don't know if that's exactly it, how it's done, but I do know this, that there were supposed to be in rows here that we got vertical rows, but they're supposed to be in rows. They're supposed to be neat and orderly. They just don't, you know, dump a bunch of, of bread, bread rolls on the table and, the, you know, fall wherever it is. 
Why is that? Because God's a God in order. He's not a God of confusion. Listen, if confusion exists, it's not God. It's man that causes it. Paul said this in 1 Corinthians 14, verse 40, speaking about ministry in the church, let all things be done decently and in order. And so this bread, it's actually called the show bread or literally the bread of the presence. And so this bread was baked fresh every week and it was set on these tables and it was there perpetually in the tabernacle in the presence of the Lord. And it was to remind the children of Israel that they are always in the presence of the Lord. You know, the same is true for you and I. We are always in his presence. Paul in the book of Acts, he's going on his ministry, going to different places. And, you know, he faced persecution. He faced, uh, you know, if you read in, I think it's 2 Corinthians, he talks about all the things that went through in his life, you know, shipwrecks and being robbed and mistreated and everything. And uh, in Acts chapter 18, verses 9 through 10, it says, Now the Lord spoke to Paul in the night by a vision. Do not be afraid, but speak. And do not keep silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to hurt you, for I have many people in this city. Can you imagine how comforting that would have been for Paul to hear that? Hey, I'm, I'm with you, Paul, no matter what you're going through. Many of you probably know this verse. Maybe you have it memorized, but it's a verse that provides a lot of comfort. Isaiah 43, verse 2. When you pass through the waters, I'll be with you. And through the rivers... They shall not overflow you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, nor shall the flame scorch you. You know, sometimes we go through some really difficult things in our life. But to remember, we're in the presence of the Lord. He sees what you and I are going through. He knows what we're going through. What a comfort that is. And so our lives really are lived in the presence of the Lord. Now, sometimes that can be bad news, right? If you're backsliding and you're sinning, well, hey, guess what? God's watching you too. But what a comfort when you and I are going through difficult times, times of uncertainty or whatever. It's like, Lord, look at what's happening. And, and God knows. He knows what's happening. He's aware of it. You see, as believers, we're never alone. Jesus promised to never leave us nor forsake us. And so this bread really pictures that, the bread in the tabernacle. And so the, the priests were to eat this bread, and they were to eat it in a holy place. In other words, in the presence of the Lord. And so you think about that, that's that fellowship that we have with the Lord. And the table, even the table is a picture of Jesus Christ in many ways. But it speaks of communion with the Lord, eating bread at the table. And then the frankincense on top of the bread. Now, I don't know if they would have sprinkled it on the bread. I don't know if you ever ate frankincense before, but I don't, I don't think it probably tastes too good. I, I know it's a, kind of a different smell when you burn it. But it was an incense that was used uh, in the tabernacle that it, the prayers ascended to the Lord with the incense as it was burned. And so frankincense is a picture of prayer in quite a few places in the Bible, and I think it is here too. And so you think of it, this, this, this communion, this fellowship with the Lord, always being in his presence, and it's through prayer that we experience that. So just a beautiful picture here. So we move on from here, and you know we're, we're having these, or God's giving these instructions to Moses, and now it's almost like there's a break 
in the situation and uh, something happens and we're given this historical account of, of what happened. Verses 10 through 13, protecting the holy name. Now the son of an Israelite woman whose father was an Egyptian went out among the children of Israel. And this Israelite woman's son and a man of Israel fought each other in the camp. And the Israel, Israelite woman's son blasphemed the name of the Lord and cursed. So they brought him to Moses. His mother's name was Shalometh, the daughter of Debri of the tribe of Dan. Then they put him in custody that the mind of the Lord might be shown to them. And so it's kind of interesting as you read through this scripture here. First, we're told that this, this young man, I don't know how old he was, but I'm assuming he's a young man. He's the son of an Egyptian man and a Hebrew woman. And, and so uh, we know from Exodus chapter 12, when the children of Israel left Egypt, there was a mixed multitude that went with them. There were probably Egyptians that went with the children of Israel, certain ones that wanted to, you know, they saw the Lord's blessings on the children of Israel and they, they wanted what the Israelites had. You know, the same thing happens with you and I. Hopefully, people see our lives and they go, man, I want that hope that you've got. I want that, you seem to be calm in the storm. I want what you have. Well, there were a mixed multitude that went out with the children of Israel. And so this father could possibly have been one of the mixed multitude that went out with the children of Israel. Or, there's another possibility. It's possible that this mother was impregnated while she was a slave in Egypt. And so it's just her and her son. That's possible too, we don't really know. But the one thing that I do know, or I, at least I, I believe, it's interesting how it's mentioned here. So if it's mentioned, it must be significant. Because if it wasn't significant, I don't think we'd even know those details. So what could possibly be significant about it? Well, I could tell you right now, I don't believe it's a national issue. It's not like you can't be with the Egyptians, you know, just Israel, just Jews, no Israel. You know, I don't think that's the issue. I certainly don't think it's a racial issue at all. What I think it is is a spiritual issue. It's a spiritual issue. I'm going to read this to you, and it's in Numbers chapter 11, verse 4. It says, Now the mixed multitude who were among, uh, who were among them yielded to intense craving. So the children of Israel also wept again and said, Who will give us meat to eat? So as you're reading this, we realize it was the mixed multitude that started whining and complaining in the wilderness about being hungry and not having food to eat. But their attitude, their comments, their reactions, it had an adverse reaction on the children of Israel. It says there that they also wept again. You know, we know from scriptures, and hopefully everybody here knows this, that as believers, we're not to be unequally yoked with unbelievers, right? You don't, you don't get married to an unbeliever. Don't date, I mean, don't even date an unbeliever, right? You, if you're a believer, you know, just, you just you, hopefully everybody knows that. I don't have to tell you that. Hopefully you understand that. But you know what? I think this passage also points out that we need to be careful in our associations as well. Be careful in your associations. The Bible says this, 1 Corinthians 15, 33, do not be deceived. Evil company corrupts good habits. You know, sometimes 
you know, we have these friends that, you know, they're unbelievers. And, you know, I don't think we're to not have any unbeliever friends or not to be around any unbelievers because we're in the world. We're to be, in, in, you know, in an influence. We're to let our light shine. So how can you do that unless you're in the world, right? So it's not like you can't have any unbelieving friends or anything like that. But it depends on how that association or how, how close you are with them. Are you getting counsel with them? Are you participating in what they're doing? That, that, that's where the line really should be drawn. And sometimes, you know, we can feel kind of convicted about the people that we're hanging out with. And we think, well, you know what? I'm the believer and I'm just going to have a positive influence on them. You know, I think that's actually kind of a, a dangerous thing to think. I think quite often the reverse happens. And I think if you see it in God's word, if you look at it over and over again, you see examples of it in God's word where evil company corrupts good habits. So anyways, this son of an Egyptian man and a Jewish woman, he blasphemed the name of the Lord and cursed. There's another version in the Bible that says he blasphemed the name and cursed. Now we know from Exodus 20 verse 7, it's the third commandment. The Lord said, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. I think it seems to be a little bit more than this. I don't think he just like said a cuss word while he was fighting. It, it, it seems like he actually cursed God himself. And what apparently it was kind of a common thing for the Egyptians to curse their gods, little g. Um, and so maybe this root, the, the root of this man's sin is that he's considering the Lord God of Israel on the same level as these uh, Egyptian idols. But whatever case, it says this in Exodus chapter 22, verse 28, you shall not revile God nor curse a ruler of your people. And so this young man evidently did that. And so what's interesting here is they didn't really know what to do at this point. And so they put him in custody, and it says that the mind of the Lord might be shown to them. I mean, they already knew cursing and, uh, you know, you don't use the Lord's name in vain. You don't regile, uh, revile God. Uh, they also know uh, Exodus 21, verse 17, he who curses his father or mother shall surely be put to death. And so, you know, if you curse your mother or father, you should be put to death. I mean, how much worse would it be if you're cursing God, right? It'd be that much worse. So you think, well, they should have, the answer should have been clear, right? He needs to be put to death. But it seems like they were maybe kind of like not really sure what to do. Perhaps because he was not a full-blooded Hebrew, maybe they're thinking, maybe this doesn't apply to foreigners. Maybe it just applies to the Jewish people. Or maybe they were thinking, well, how should the execution be taken, be carried out? Because it just says they put to death and say, how? Or who's going to administer it? Maybe the Lord. I mean, they saw Nadab and Abihu. You know, they they were struck by the Lord there uh, when they brought strange fire into the into the tabernacle. So maybe they're thinking, well, maybe God's going to take care of it Himself. Maybe we don't have to do anything. So they really didn't know what to do. So what did they do? They put the guy in custody, and then they waited on the Lord. And I think that's such an important thing for you and I to remember. You know, you get into a new situation, you're really not sure what to do. The best thing to do is just sit back and seek the Lord and wait on the Lord 
when the when the situation's not clear. That's that's a good thing to do. It's not it's not a bad thing to to hold back and go. You know, I'm really not sure about this. Let me pray about it. Let me seek the Lord. Let me spend time in the Word. Let me just spend time and wait on the Lord for this. It's okay. Sometimes we feel like we have to rush through and make decisions. Not always. Sometimes it's good to wait. And you know, if we wait on the Lord, we will be rewarded. Proverbs 2, verses 3 through 6. Yes, if you cry out for discernment and lift up your voice for understanding, if you seek her as silver and search for her as for hidden treasures, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. God wants you to understand him. He wants you to know his mind. He wants to reveal his will to you in whatever situation you are in. And so to cry out to him, he's a rewarder. The Bible says he's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. James 1.5, you guys probably are very familiar with this passage. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. You know, when I was growing up and get into certain situations, like in the military or in, in school, like at high school and stuff, or even college, they said, you know, no, there's no stupid question. You know, if you don't know the answer, ask. Well, it's kind of the same thing here. God's saying, hey, if you don't really understand, seek me, I'll reveal it to you. And so that's what the children of Israel did. They didn't really know what to do. And so they waited on the Lord. And then look what happens in verse 14. Oops, I got ahead of myself again. Hang on a second. Verse 14. That's a, that's a sneak preview to what I'm going to share in a minute. <laughs> he says, Take outside the camp him who has cursed. Then let all who heard him lay their hands on his head and let all the congregation stone him. So there's their answer. Take him out and stone him to death. And it says, Let all who heard him in other words, witnesses lay their hands on his head. So there had to be witnesses involved. This is a serious crime. Later on, in Deuteronomy 17, verse 6, the Lord's going to tell Moses, says, whoever is deserving of death shall be put to death on the testimony of two or three witnesses. He shall not be put to death on the testimony of one witness. Isn't that a relief? You know, you get one person that's got a vendetta against you. You know, I heard him do this. You know, and we hear that all the time now in the news, right? Somebody's accused of this or that, and it's like, well, is it really true? I don't know. But here, one person. You couldn't be put to death on the testimony of one person. There needed to be multiple witnesses. And evidently, there was multiple witnesses for what this man had done. It's per, uh, having multiple witnesses is important because it protects against false accusations. Now, not to say that a group of people can't get together and say something false, but at least there's, you know, there's a, a level of protection here. You know, you look at what's going on in our culture today, the way people mock and revile and blaspheme the name of the Lord. It's terrible. And, you, you know, you think, man, man, it's, wow, I, I, man, it just causes me to shudder when I think about it. What could happen? Well, interesting. The punishment for reviling against the Lord, blaspheming him, is punishable by stoning. Here's the, you know, the Lord says, take him out and stone him. And what I was going to show you, and I'm going to show you now, is very interesting during the Great Tribulation. Now, during the Great Tribulation, the Lord Jesus has removed his church from the world, from the earth. 
We've been removed. And now he's pouring out his wrath on a Christ-rejecting world. And you wonder how low can people go? How, how, how bad, how wicked can people get? And it, I think the scripture reveals it to us. The very first thing it says there, and this is in Revelation 16, verses 8 through 9. Then the fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and power was given to him to scorch men with fire. And men were scorched with great heat, and they blasphemed the name of God who has power over these plagues, and they did not repent and give him glory. So even, even in the tribulation, God's still merciful giving people an opportunity to repent, and they're not repenting. They're refusing to repent. In fact, they're going so far as to blaspheme God, to curse him for that great heat. But it doesn't end there. In that same chapter, verse 10, it says, Then the fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and his kingdom became full of darkness, and they gnawed their tongues because of the pain. They blasphemed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores, and did not repent of their deeds. One more thing in there again, they're cursing God, blaspheming his name. Well, if you move on further in that chapter, it seems like now God's going to stone them because we get to verse 21 of that same chapter, and great hail fell from heaven upon men. Each hailstone weighed, uh, uh, each hailstone about the weight of a talent. I think it's 100 pounds if I remember doing that math before we were in Revelation. Men blasphemed God because of the plague of the hail since that plague was exceedingly great. Even while this punishment's being poured down on them, you know, literally physically getting stoned to death by these great big hailstones, they're still cursing God. That's how depraved and wicked and, and, and how far gone humanity will be during the Great Tribulation. It's going to be a terrible, terrible time. For you and I, praise the Lord, we won't, I believe we won't be there. We'll be in heaven at the marriage supper of the Lamb, rejoicing with Jesus. So we move on here. Now that they've gotten the answer from the Lord what to do with this man, now the Lord gives them some more, uh, some more instructions about appropriate penalties. Verses 15 to 23. Then you shall speak to the children of Israel, saying, Whoever curses his God shall bear his sin, and whoever blasphemes the name of the Lord shall uh, surely be put to death. All the congregation shall, shall certainly stone him, the stranger as well as him who is born in the land. When he blasphemes the name of the Lord, he shall be put to death. Whoever kills any man shall surely be put to death. Whoever kills an animal shall make it good, animal for animal. If a man causes disfigurement of his neighbor as he has done, so it shall be done to him. Fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. As he has caused disfigurement of a man, so it shall be done to him. And whoever kills an animal shall restore it, but whoever kills a man shall be put to death. You shall have the same law for the stranger and for one from your own country. For I am the Lord your God. Then Moses spoke to the children of Israel, and they took outside the camp him who had cursed and stoned him with stones. So the children of Israel did as the Lord commanded him. That would have been a very difficult thing to carry out, you know, this capital punishment. It would have been very difficult, and yet this is what the Lord commanded, and they obeyed. They obeyed the Lord. So if you're looking at back at verses 15 through 16, 
They didn't know what to do. They didn't know the situation. You know, uh, this is a foreigner. You know, I mean, does it apply to him, or who's going to carry it out, or what's the actual uh, method of of putting him to death? And now the rule is established. Now they know. Next time, you know, hopefully it never happens again. But if it does, they know exactly what to do. And it also seems to indicate that maybe their question was, hey, this guy's a foreigner. Uh, we don't know if it applies to him. And, and they're, they're told there specifically it applies to any of the inhabitants of the land, whether Jew or Gentile. It doesn't matter. It applies to anybody who curses God. And then in verses 17 through 18, we see this. Human life is infinitely, I would put, of more value than animal life. Now, I'm an animal lover. I love animals. You know, scriptures, I don't believe, gives us a license to be cruel to animals. I think we're to be kind and compassionate to animals as well. But you look at our culture today, and the world is just so turned upside down. You know, there's, there's, a, there's a drive, there's a move in culture to make men equal on the same plane as animals. No better than an animal. And, and, and in the case of, I believe, in abortion, it's actually making men lower than animals because there's certain species that are protected. You can't, you, can't, you, know, you can't harm them. But there's no law against harming a baby, an infant in the womb. And it's getting, you know, you guys know the, the latest political things and stuff. It's getting to where they're saying, you know, even after birth, hey, it doesn't matter. That's, that's how, that's how, I mean, they've had a successful, you know, drive in, in lowering man in this culture, and, and, and we're at that point now, unfortunately. So human life is certainly of more value than animal life. And then we have verses 19 through 21. <clears throat> and that's kind of a, you know, sometimes people have a little bit of a difficult uh, time with uh, verses 19 through 21, uh, you know, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. You guys have heard that many times, right? Uh, as it has been done to him, so it should be, as he does, it should be done to him. You know, and, and some people go, man, that is so cruel. I mean, it's like, man, that's so, it's terrible. In fact, you know, if, if, if we actually followed this eye for eye, tooth for tooth, there'd be toothless people that are blind walking around, you know, around this room, because everybody's doing that, right? Um, <laughs> this is for society. God is starting a nation here. And can you imagine if there was no laws? It'd be like every man does whatever they want to do. We're kind of getting to that point now. Um, but this is the start of a nation. There's no police. There's not a police force. There's no civil magistrates. This, these laws were designed to protect the nation. You know, one of the things that I believe, and I think scripture backs it up, that there's no victimless crime. Sometimes we think, well, you know, it's not hurting anybody. You know, there's, the, crime always has a victim. There's a price to be paid. And, you know, even in our day and age now, we see so much injustice going on around us, you know, and, and you cry out to the Lord and go, Lord, where are you? And you see these things happening. I, I was just really disturbed to see, I don't know if you saw this article about this girl in New York City, 15-year-old girl, I think she was. She got mugged by a group of, I think, I don't know, 15 guys or something. They just beat her. 
and just they robbed her and it's all caught on video and stuff and you look at that and go how can somebody do that you know it just but that's when you start lowering man in the estimation of, of our culture we're just animals and now we're behaving like animals too so what do you expect they've been taught hey he just came from the goo to the zoo and now you're you you know and so it doesn't matter you know it's um, but I but I think that's taking a toll on our nation and so we're seeing this you know the Bible says in the last days the love of many will grow cold and we're, we're witnessing it with our own eyes anyways there is no victimless crime there's no ugh, this thing really bugs me no fall accidents because it's like what Right? Is that the, the law in Minnesota? There's like no fault accidents when you you know get in a car wreck or something. It used to be you know, hey, they did it. <laughs> and I was like, doesn't matter who did it. You just let your insurance company duke it out and stuff. Um, no fault divorce. That's a that's a that's another one. You know, so we we have all these things. It's like the, the, the culture saying, well, there's no there's no victims. Well, yeah, there are victims. And so here, the Lord God is starting out a nation. He's developing them. He's, it's really a protection for the people of the land. And so the penalty fits the seriousness of the crime. You know, today we look at some of the things that people do and they're getting away with it. And you go, man, if I did that, I'd be in jail. And yet these people, that, they're politi you know, politicians or they're powerful or they're wealthy. And it's like they get away with murder. So much injustice going on. And so for the nation of Israel, they're, the crime fits the punishment. It's appropriate penalties. This penalties, it also prevents one-upmanship. What I mean by that is, you know, the Lord says, hey, if, if somebody takes an eye, then their eye should be taken. Rather than if somebody takes their eye, then you take their arm, their leg, you take their other eye, rip off an ear if you want. You know, I mean, that's human nature, right? Uh, if you do something to me, man, I'm going to get you back and I'm going to do it that much more worse. That's human nature. So in a sense, this is also kind of holding back uh, a revenge sort of attitude here. Human nature is to escalate. Our flesh is, the nature of our flesh is to escalate. And so this would keep it in check. He says, you shall have the same law for the stranger and for one from your own country, for I am the Lord your God. And so I think, again, I think that the answer to them was, it doesn't matter if he's, if he's foreign born or if he's got an Egyptian parent and a Jewish mother. If he's did this, then he's to be held accountable for it. To be punished for it. You know, the tendency, and, and what's kind of interesting to me is that, you know, it seems like a lot of times, and later on it'll happen, but a lot of times it's like, okay, if, if a stranger, we're going to treat them a little bit rougher, right? They're going to have it a little bit stricter, and we'll, we'll kind of, you know, the, the good old boys, we'll take care of each other. But here it's indicating there's not to be any bias. It's the same law that applies to everybody, no favoritism. Now, I know a lot of people struggle with these kind of passages, and they go, well, that's the Old Testament, and then you get to what Jesus said in the New Testament, and it, and it just seems like, like God of the Old Testament is this cruel, bloodthirsty God that hates people and wants to, you know, it's just, it's just, there's no mercy. And then you have Jesus in the New Testament. He's a loving, you know, uh, he says this. 
You've heard that it was said, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, but I tell you not to resist an evil person. But whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. If anyone wants to sue you and take away your tunic, let him have your cloak also. And whoever compels you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks you, and from him who wants to borrow from you, do not turn away. And you read that and go, wait a minute. We have this and you have that. How do they match up? One thing that we fail to remember is that the laws here in Deuteronomy, or excuse me, in Leviticus, they're for the nation. It's not for individuals necessarily. That guy takes your eye out, you go ahead and take his eye out. That's not what, he, that's not what the command was. It was for the nation, to protect the nation, to have some laws. And, and so there's some penalties that, the, that the, the nation would inflict on the people. It was never a command of, okay, if they take your eye, you go ahead and take their eye out. You know, whatever you, you just cut off their hand. They cut your off your hand, you cut off their hand. That's not what God is saying there. And so we have Jesus here in the New Testament. And, you know, by the time he came around, it, it, you know, the, the Pharisees and the scribes and everything, they had so twisted God's law on everything. They had twisted everything. And so Jesus says, hey, you've heard what we've, I mean, we're, he was quoting back to this. You've heard an eye for an eye or a tooth for tooth. But I tell you not to resist an evil person. You can respond in love. Personally, you can respond in love. Now, there's laws, but you don't have to. You can forgive people, and you can love people. And love is so much more powerful and stronger than, than hate and revenge. And so... Uh, I guess that's pretty much it for this chapter. <laughs> uh, but anyways, so these laws were meant to protect the nation. And uh, I hope, you know, I know there have been the past I've struggled with this passage. I'm like, I don't understand. Why is it an eye for eye in the Old Testament? And yet here Jesus says, you know, turn the other cheek. Turn the other cheek. 